As we get started this morning, we're going to make our way back to Luke uh, chapter 2 today. As you guys head that way in Scripture, if you're new with us on the way we work through text is going uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line upon line, and we let the Lord uh, build those things in our heart as He does so. We spent pretty much all of 2023 in First and Second Corinthians, and so as we wrapped uh, up the letter of Second Corinthians, we were a couple weeks out of this Christmas season, and before we jumped into our next study, which will begin the second week of January in the book of Genesis, uh, we wanted to take some time and just walk through the Christmas story in a verse-by-verse and a chapter-by-chapter manner. And so as you guys make your way that direction, I'll remind you where we were in Luke chapter 1. And in the first chapter of Luke, I'm not going to go through all 80 verses, so you can breathe deep. But as we look at a highlight of these 80 verses, what we find is we're introduced to Zacharias as one of the main characters in chapter 1. He was a priest there in the temple, and as a priest, he was called up, as you might say, out of the minor leagues. And so he was called up out of the minors into the big time to get the chance during the feast season to serve there in the temple. And so he was called to just do what he had been really born to do and serve there in the temple before the Lord, offering uh, offerings at the altar of incense. And while he's there doing his job, just doing what God called him to do, the Lord met him right there where he was at. And as the Lord met him, he sent an angel, the angel Gabriel, to give a word that he and his wife Elizabeth would conceive and she would have a son. And this might not seem to be a huge word from the Lord, except for the fact that Zacharias and Elizabeth had never been able to have children. They had been barren, his wife had, and so they had gone their entire marriage and now they're old. Their their grandparents are great-grandparents' age. Things aren't working biologically like what they once were. And so this was an impossible word that the Lord had given to Zacharias that was going to take place. And what the angel said was not only would she give birth, but give birth to a son and they should name his name John. And what I shared with you then is this would be the beginnings of John the Baptist on the scene. But this name, John, literally translated in Hebrew means God is gracious. And so you find for these two people who maybe at times it felt like they were cursed by God, that's at least the way Elizabeth would have felt as her womb had been closed, is that the Lord says, no, I'm not cursing you. You're you're actually going to be given grace. You're going to be given a son that means God is gracious. And so Zacharias and Elizabeth, they would eventually welcome a son. But Zacharias' reaction to this was to not believe. He didn't believe the word that the angel had given to him. And so as a result, he was rendered mute. He wasn't able to speak. And what I shared with you uh, last week and the week before is that when we do not believe, we lose the ability to say or to speak anything that has any real value into people's lives. The only thing we can share, if we're not sharing God's word and his wisdom, is the wisdom of this world. And we all know where and how that kind of wisdom ends. And so Zacharias was not able to speak. He had nothing really to say because of his lack of belief. Now when we skip down to verses 26 through 38, we were introduced to another character. This is a young lady who lived up in the Galilee region in a small town called Nazareth, and her name was Mary. She would be visited by the angel Gabriel as well, who would communicate another miraculous birth, only this one would be even more miraculous than Zacharias and Elizabeth having a child, as it was she, a virgin, was going to conceive, and she was going to have a child 
all this prophecy 700 years from the time it was communicated to Isaiah that the virgin would give birth and bring forth a child in Israel. And the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. Literally, the Spirit of God would come and dwell within her. This is the promise given to Mary. And what we find is, is Mary being a 14 or 15 year old girl, no doubt, even though this is an amazing word from the Lord, this has also got to be terrifying. And what does God do? But He takes her out of the spot that she was in and He puts her in community with Elizabeth, her cousin who is just a few months further along in her relationship and her experience with Jesus. And what I shared with you and I'll remind you is that God loves to take and put us in community with other believers. Other people perhaps that are just a little bit further ahead than us that can come alongside us and be an encouragement to us. And this is what Elizabeth was as Mary came into her house to live with her. Now at the end of the chapter we find Elizabeth then giving birth to John, this John the Baptist, who became the fulfillment of the prophetic word given, the final word given in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, 400 years before this time that we're studying right now, these are the final words given, Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And you will turn, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so the promise that was given through John the Baptist is that he would pave the way for the coming Messiah, that he would be of the spirit of Elijah the prophet. And what we find is he was a, a fiery prophet in the same spirit as Elijah and even the same dress code. I mean, wearing camel fur, eating bugs, living out in the wilderness. At, at no point in time was this ever cool, by the way, to wear camel fur. So if, if you plan to give a camel fur jacket to anybody in your family tomorrow, sorry to ruin it for you probably not cool. But even though it's not necessarily cool, we see, uh, we see John the Baptist out there in the wilderness with a message in hand that is very simple. It is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls about a message of repentance to turn away from their sin nature that the kingdom of heaven, speaking of Jesus, it's literally time. The kingdom of heaven is here. He showed up amongst us. And so that brings us to chapter 2. Verse 1, where we begin, and it came to pass. I'll stop there. And it came to pass are the first words in chapter 2. It, this phrase, I tried to go back through and do some research this week. I believe it was around 452 times in Scripture that the phrase, and it came to pass, shows up. Either way, the Lord oftentimes through Scripture renders this phrase, and it came to pass. The reason I, I stopped there is because especially in this season of life that many of us are in, we are looking for this thing to come to pass. Whatever thing you've got going on, whatever storm you're in, whatever thing you're battling, whatever place where it feels like the waves are crashing over your head, how often you just want this thing to come to pass. And the promise of the Word of the Lord is it will. It will come to pass. This thing that you are dealing with, it will have an ending. God's Word promises it. And, and the truth about us as Christians is that God didn't plan us here to be evergreen trees. I mean, we'd love for it to be green all the time, maybe a little bit prickly sometimes, but green all the time, looking good, and yet that's not what God sent us here to be. He sent us here to be deciduous trees. In fact, taking the analogy a step further, to be fruit trees. He called us to come here and to actually bear fruit. And what that means is if we're deciduous trees, is we're going to go through seasons in our life. There are going to be some of us that have 
a, a winter season and then a fall or and then a spring. I'll get the seasons right. A winter and then a spring and then a summer. And we'd love to stay summer. We'd love for it to be summer. All year I can show off my leaves. I'm bearing fruit. But what we know is before long, fall shows up, doesn't it? And the weather begins to change and the leaves start to fall off. And the next thing you know it, you're in the midst of a winter season. And it feels like death. It seems that there is no life, there's nothing happening, but the promise here in Scripture and in the life cycle that we see as Christians is spring's coming. There is a spring season. Life is still there. God is still good. This thing will come to pass. And so maybe if you get nothing else out of this morning, hear those words today from the Lord. This thing will come to pass. So we continue. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now Caesar Augustus, as is listed here, was actually known historically, his given name was Gaius Octavius. And Gaius Octavius, if you're a history person at all, what you know is uh, he was a tremendous Caesar, tremendous ruler. In fact, uh, great military victories and also known for what they called uh, Pax Romana. And what Pax Romana literally meant was Roman peace, peace throughout the Roman Empire. Now the way they obtained Pax Romana or Roman peace is if you started an insurrection or there was any kind of uh, lack of peace, they would send the Roman military in. Uh, they would do what we call in my neck of the woods, uh, stomp a mud hole in whoever brought about the insurrection, and then there would be peace after that. Nobody would be left that would have started any kind of rioting. And so Pax Romana existed throughout the Roman Empire, and such a great ruler that Gaius Octavius, this wasn't a good enough name for him, so they called him the August One. He was to have almost a, a deity of sorts. He actually considered himself to be uh, akin to or like the gods. And so this is the most powerful man in the known world. And what he decides is there's going to be a tax. Everyone is to go back to their father's city to be registered so the world can be taxed. And what Caesar Augustus said, that's what happened. And yet, as we look at our story today, as the most powerful man on the earth has now made a decree, this is exactly what was taking place behind the scenes. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. You guys probably spent a bunch of time in your minor prophets, but here's what Micah 5.2 says. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. The word from Micah, 700 years prior to Gaius Octavius, Caesar Augustus giving a decree, was that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But right now, Messiah's mother, Mary, is living in uh, Nazareth, in the Galilee region, 80 miles away. So what does God do? But He has the most powerful man in the world give an order, a decree, that would actually move Mary and Joseph directly into the spot that God said Messiah was going to be born. And what I am sharing with you, and what I want to encourage you in, is that God can move mountains in order for His will to be done. He will move mountains so that His will is going to take place in our lives, which means verses like Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'll go there and, and read it and remind you of these words spoken by Paul, but inspired by the Spirit, that we know all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. That these two are called by God to be the parents 
of Messiah. And as they were called, God was going to move heaven and earth in order for these things, His will to actually be done, for His word to be accomplished. And He does the same thing in our lives to this very day. We get upset about the MSNBCs and the CNNs and all the things we see, but understand that nothing happens outside of the direction of God. He allows what He allows, and He does it in accordance to His will and actually to our good. And so we see this taking place in the life of Mary and Joseph. Now continuing in verse 2, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so Luke, being a good doctor, loving his details, gives us a detail that helps us place this inside a historical narrative. He continues in verse 3, So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so Joseph takes a pregnant Mary on an 80-mile journey from uh, Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. Now, in our day and age with our transportation, 80 miles doesn't seem that bad. But if you've ever tried to take a pregnant lady anywhere, uh, you know that those journeys can be very long and difficult. It's hard... uh, sometimes for us to even get from here to Mattoon without having to go pee, right? And so we know, like, these journeys are difficult whenever we're taking a pregnant lady places. And here, for Mary and Joseph, via donkey and feet, they are now traveling 80 miles. It probably took 8, 10, 12 days. Why on earth would they ever make that journey? Except the most powerful man on earth said they had to. And so they were forced into a spot that actually was in accordance with God's will. And they made the journey. Now, no doubt while they were there in Nazareth, what you have to know is when a teenage girl becomes pregnant and she is merely engaged or betrothed her husband, that means they hadn't consummated the marriage relationship. There were all kinds of rumors floating around Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town, probably the size of Martinsville in our common day. And so everyone in town would have known what was going on. You can imagine the the whispers that were happening, even the the doubting that was taking place within their own family. In fact, if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, Joseph had even had his doubts. This is what Joseph says in verse 19 of Matthew 1. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Joseph, even being a good dude, was like, look, I'm going to just divorce her quietly. I don't want to make a public spectacle. The law says she's going to actually be stoned to death for sleeping around when she was legally bound as uh, Joseph's wife. And so he decides to do the right thing, he thinks, until in verse 20, an angel, the angel of the Lord visited him in a dream and explained that she had conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so as God moves them out of Nazareth, this small town that's whispering, think about what he also does. He takes them away from the rumor mill. He actually moves them into a spot that is gracious where they don't have to hear all the whispers and all the things floating around their small town. And so as Mary and Joseph experience Jesus now coming into their lives, what takes place is they have some scorn that happens, don't they? And this is true even for us today. That as we begin to accept Jesus into our life, as we begin to be transformed from the inside out, we find as oftentimes scorn actually happens. Even those closest to us, our own family, can feel like 
Maybe we've changed too much. I'm not even sure who this person is. And so we see this happen, and yet God is still gracious to put us in a spot where we can thrive. Now, it's mentioned here in chapter 2 that Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. Why is this so important? Again, it fulfills Old Testament prophecy. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, <clears throat> David, as the king of Israel, is in the highlight, the pinnacle of his career. And he's looking out over his kingdom. He's there in his palace. And as he's there in Jerusalem, he's thinking about how good God has been to him in his life. But you know what? Here's, here's the Lord still dwelling in the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle, when Moses uh, got the word to construct it, it was an okay building, but it was covered in brown camel fur. It wasn't the, the brown badger skins. It wasn't the most beautiful structure. And it was made to be mobile. And so essentially what David looks at is, here's God dwelling in a mobile home. He's in a double-wide trailer while I'm living in a palace. And for those of us who grew up in a double-wide, hey, they weren't so bad in the moment, but a palace is certainly better than a double-wide. And so the Lord is, or David is looking at this and saying, Lord, how is it I get to live in this house? I'm going to build for you a temple. This is what he's got on his heart and in his mind. I'm going to build something awesome for God. And yet in verse 11, this is what Nathan the prophet says to David from the Lord. He says, I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. And also the Lord tells you, he will make you a house. You've desired to build a house for God. That's not a bad thing that you want to do something good for the Lord. But the Lord's promise for David was he was going to build him a house. He continues in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The promise of the Messiah coming through the lineage of David. He is now speaking directly about Jesus who was to come, and it was to be through this line. Which is why when you begin to read your Bible, and it's always exciting at the first of the year, I'm going to read the Bible. And what do we do? We open to Matthew because we don't want to start in the Old Testament and wear ourselves out. And what do we get right off the bat? A stinking genealogy. Thanks, Lord. A bunch of names of people I don't know. Why would that be the first thing? Well, it's the first thing because we have the genealogy of David and Jesus coming through the line of Joseph. And so we see this genealogy that exists right off the bat because the Messiah was to come through the Davidic line. And so it's, it's why it's placed there. But there's some of you that are raising your hands that have questions. Why is it important that it comes through the line of Joseph when Joseph wasn't his real daddy? So here we have this problem in Scripture that Jesus came through the line of Mary, not through Joseph. Joseph wasn't his real dad. Which is why, if you flip to Luke chapter 3, at the end of Luke 3, you see a whole other genealogy given. This is the genealogy of Mary. And what you find if you go through the genealogy of Mary is, Mary was also of the line of David. So either way you slice it, Jesus came from the line of David exactly as the Scripture said that He would. Now we continue here in verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So it's 
Very possible. We often think in our minds that Mary and Joseph showed up in Bethlehem and she was just getting ready to have the baby. But what Scripture actually tells us is some days passed. So it was likely that she was advanced in her pregnancy, but it wasn't the next day that she had a baby. They were in Bethlehem a little while. And while they were there in Bethlehem, we're told that she brought forth her firstborn son. And I found that interesting this week that it doesn't say she and Joseph brought forth her firstborn son. She did it. By the way, if you've ever been in a delivery room and seen how much use we as guys are, we are no good. None of us. Not one is actually of any use. We're usually asleep on a couch, thinking we're going to get sick or passed out, don't want to go down there and help. Like There's all these things that we experience in the delivery room, and so what the lady is left to do is do all the work. And so there's lots of women that are excited that I said that right now. There's some head nodding. But that's the reality. So here's Joseph. Where is he at? He's maybe asleep in the corner. We don't know. He's not doing a lot to help because Mary is bringing forth this child. But I also wanted to note in all seriousness that she's brought forth her firstborn son. She brought forth her firstborn son, which means there's no story of perpetual virginity for Mary, that she and Joseph eventually do consummate the relationship and they have a family. In fact, we know from Scripture that Jesus had two half-brothers for sure because James and Jude are both writers in the New Testament. And so James and Jude and sisters were birthed through Mary, family for Jesus. So Jesus knew what it was like to have a family, and he also knew what it was like for his family to think he was crazy. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we are told that they thought he was out of his mind. And in Matthew chapter 12, his family goes while Jesus is teaching. They want to talk to him in private. Why? Because they think he's crazy. Stop talking about being the Messiah. You're making it hard on all of us. And so we find, as Jesus knows all about, difficult family, and yet, when we go through the Scriptures, what you find is James and Jude eventually end up being followers of Jesus when? After the resurrection. We're told that Jesus intentionally went and visited his brother James after his resurrection, and James goes on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And I say all that to say, If you have a run-in or an interaction with the resurrected Jesus, you'll never be the same. There's no way to deny that. There's There's no way to turn back from that. And so James was given the name Old Camel Knees throughout church history because he was known for his prayer life. This is a guy who didn't even believe in his brother while he was alive. So there's hope for each of us. Now, What we find in the text, back to the story, is that Mary takes the child that she's delivered and she places him in a manger. And often we get this concept that a manger is a whole structure, but the reality is a manger in ancient Israel was typically hewn out of stone and it was a feeding trough. This was a place for the animals to feed in, like the picture I've shown there on the screen typically, and this is where she places Jesus, who was born in the city of Bethlehem, in Hebrew, Beth is house, Laham is bread. The name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And what does Jesus say in John chapter 6, verse 35? But this, I'll go there and read it so I don't misquote it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. I am the bread of of life. And here in the city known as the house of bread, the bread of life is born and placed there in a feeding trough for us to be able to 
feed, to have sustenance, not literally of his flesh, but spiritually. He is where our spiritual food, our manna comes from. Our sustenance comes from the bread of life. Now we continue as the picture will get clearer in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. In verse 10, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. And so there in this area of Bethlehem, there there were hills that roll out of the city of Bethlehem and actually go towards the city of Jerusalem. Bethlehem is essentially a suburb of the city of Jerusalem. And so it's very likely that for these shepherds that were out in the hill country, they were perhaps watching over the temple flocks. So for the temple, these sacrifices would happen in Jerusalem. And they needed people to watch over, to tend to the flocks that would be used and offered up as sacrifices during the feasts and even the daily rituals that would happen there at the temple. And these shepherds would be in charge of those very lamb and sheep there outside of the city of Bethlehem. And the angel of the Lord came to these guys. Now it might seem like, hey, they've got a pretty cool job. They're in charge of the temple flocks. They must be some kind of high-ranking officials. But the reality is, they were the lowest of society. Often considered unclean, uh, not the people that you would want to invite over uh, without reputation. Essentially, this is like inviting Cousin Eddie over for dinner. Cousin Eddie over to just live in your driveway. These are the shepherds. This is what everybody thought about them. You're not going to invite these guys. They wouldn't even take their testimony in court as someone that could be trusted. This is who they were going to. This is who the angels went to to first announce the birth of Jesus. I mean, think about that. These people without reputation, unclean, unkept, No one would want to even be associated with them. And yet here is Jesus being announced to them first. It reminds me of what Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Here, Peter's getting ready to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. And what he says, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. God does not, let me repeat, God does not discriminate. God is not a God who discriminates. God does not have a high opinion or a high uh, reputation of man. He doesn't look for a person's reputation in order to come to them. God is not a God of discrimination. He welcomes all in. Please hear me. God welcomes all into Himself. He loves us enough to welcome us where we're at. But He also loves us enough not to leave us there. That's the important thing to note. This is the piece that gets so often missed. That God loves us enough to include us, to bring us in. Jesus welcomed all people, but what did He tell all people after He'd welcomed them in? But go and sin no more. This was His message. Cut it out. Why did He say go and sin no more? Because sin is bad for us. Sin isn't sin because it's bad. It's sin because it's bad for us. And as a good father, he looks upon us. He considers us all his children, and he says, I want better for you. I don't want you to be hurt by this thing anymore. You who have kids in here, you know how it feels when your kids are struggling or hurting or in a spot where they're experiencing something they need to get out of that lifestyle. 
You'd move heaven and earth. You'd take a gunshot for them. And now, if you put yourself in that mindset, you understand how much God loves us. He loves us that much. So much that He would send His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him, they should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the grace of God, right? That He loves us so much that He would give everything up so that we could have eternal life. And He loves us enough to include us, to bring us in, but to then set us free. Have us freed from that thing that would otherwise kill us. We continue in verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And so the Savior has been born. This is the message that the angels have for these dirty shepherds who are excited now. They're hearing about the Savior being born. But here's the word. Here's how you're going to know. He's laying in a feeding trough of all things. That sounds odd. But then also he's wrapped in swaddling cloths. Why give that level of detail? Why does it matter what baby Jesus is dressed in? I mean, have you ever wondered that? Like, is he in a cute little onesie? What's he wearing? That way we, like, he's a baby in a feeding trough. How much more information do you need? And yet, it was given to them that this baby would be in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. Which, by the way, if these truly were the shepherds that watched over the temple flocks, it was under their charge to make sure the lambs that were born would be unblemished. If they were blemished, they couldn't be used for sacrifices. And so as the lambs would be born, they would take swaddling cloths and they would wrap the newborn lambs up in them so that they would not be harmed or hurt. So that they could eventually be used to be a sacrifice for our sins, for the sins of the nation. And now you see the story beginning to play out. That here is the bread of life lying in a place for feeding, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and what John would say, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29, is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You have the story, the message of the Gospel, right there in this very scene that we see, where 33 years later from this spot, this baby is going to become a, a man, a prophet, a priest, a king, the Messiah, the Mashiach, is going to come and he's going to give his life. Not have his life taken from him. He's going to give his life on Passover and become the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, which is exactly what these guys needed. They had no business being in the temple. They had no business being the first communicated to by God, except that God deemed that they were worthy. God was giving them grace. God was giving them His righteousness. And as He gives His righteousness to them, it was what they needed. This is what God was always about, by the way. If you go back into the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses meets God there in the burning bush, and he gives Moses direction. This is what you're to go do and tell the nation and tell Pharaoh. And what's Moses say? But who do I tell him sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. It's where the covenant name of God comes from. Y-H-V-H in the Hebrew. Such a holy name, they wouldn't even write the vowels down. It's translated for us either Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't know which because they wouldn't write the vowels down. And yet, 
the, the meaning of the name is I am. I am what? I am whatever you need. I am whatever you need in the time in which you need it. And the thing that we need the most is a Savior. And so this Savior would be named Jesus in Greek or Yeshua in Hebrew. Jehovah Shua, I am salvation. He was our very salvation that we need. In the Greek, the ego emi, the great I am, was right there before them, ready to give his life for you and I. Precisely what they need when they needed it. Continuing in verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Please understand that God's desire for each of us in our lives is to have peace. Not just any peace, but the peace of God. And I don't know about you, but but that's something I would like to have. I would like to have peace. I would love to have the peace of God. And if you're wondering how you can have the peace of God, here's the answer. Be in His will. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Well, how do I get in His will? What is the will of God? What would God have me to do in order to be in His will? I'm so glad you asked. John chapter 6, verse 29. This is a very complicated message that Jesus gives about what it is to be in the will of God or to work the works of God. Jesus in verse 29 says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. That's it. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. So how do we find ourselves in the will of God? How do we obtain the peace of God? It's this simple, to believe in Him who He sent. And as I believe in Him, His peace actually comes and dwells in me. And even though His circumstances are, there are circumstances happening all around me that would seem like they weren't peaceful, I can have the peace of God dwelling within me. And that's a huge, huge message for those of us that want so badly to fix everything. To fix ourselves, to fix those around us, to fix this relationship with God. If I could just fix it, if I could just get everything back to being right, then, then God could love me. But here's the reality. We can't fix it. We don't have the ability to fix ourselves. We don't have the ability to get out of our own way most days. But what we do have the ability to do is believe in Him who can. I can believe in Him who can fix me and who does love me. He loves me now even though I'm not fixed. I don't have it all together. God is not looking for you to come in here and have it all together. So many times we avoid and miss out on church and these experiences because I guess got to get a few things worked out. i got to get it right so I can get in and get some Jesus. Well, friends, if we're waiting to get it right so we can come in and be together and get some Jesus, we're never going to make it. What He needs us to do is just get in here and to realize that He loves us even in this spot that we're in. That this relationship is not about what I can do for Him or what I can provide for Him. It's about what He can do for me. It's about who He is in my life. He can fix me from the inside out. And if you've ever tried to hold it all together, this season is full of so much anxiety because many times we're trying to hold this piece together and this piece together and it feels like we're on the stretcher. They're just ratcheting it down one more notch at a time and I can't hold it together. There's no peace in me trying to do it all. But what Jesus communicates in John chapter 19, verse 30, 
is it to tell us thy? His final words, it is finished. Not it is about to be finished or I'm getting around to finishing it. That's the answer I usually give. I'm getting around to it. No, Jesus communicates it is finished. The work is completed. And now the only thing I need to do, the only part left for me is to believe. Just simply to believe in Him who He sent. Verse 15, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. That they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And now when they had seen Him, they made widely known the saying which was told concerning this child. And so the shepherd's response as they get this word from the angels is, let us go. Not let us go in a little bit. Uh, We'll get around to it one of these days. No, but let us go now. Now's the time for action. They'd received a word from the Lord. And notice with me, let us go now. And later in verse 17, they came with haste. Excuse me, verse 16. They came with haste. They were not messing around. They'd gotten a word from the Lord and they were ready to put it into action. They couldn't wait to do what God said. And what I want to encourage you in is if God gives you a word, if He moves on your heart, if you feel like you need to draw close to Him, He'll draw close to you. If you feel like there's a word being given to you, don't wait around. Make the next move. Continue to pursue Him with haste in this relationship. And as they arrive there at the manger scene, what do you notice? The angels are gone. There's Mary and Joseph. But what they focus in on is the child, Jesus. What they're left with is Jesus. He's who remains. What I wanted to share with you in this is miracles, they don't save. Angels don't save. Experiences, while they may be great, they don't save. Only Jesus saves. Salvation is found through Him. By His grace, we are saved. He is it. Experiences and miracles are fantastic. It's great to have them. But Jesus is who really saves. And when we truly experience Him, we can't wait to share about it. When you truly have an experience with Him, just like these crazy shepherds, they can't wait to go out and tell everybody the Jesus that they had just experienced. It's like a a fire that's inside us, right? Jeremiah would say, there's a fire in my bones. I tried to contain it, but I couldn't. It's like acid reflux, you know, a terrible analogy. But you get the idea. It just comes back up. You know, I can't wait to talk to you about Jesus and what He's doing in my life. So this is the spot that they're in because they truly experienced Him. Verse 18, And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So the public... They were in amazement. The shepherds are excited. Mary, meanwhile, she pondered. All this happened simply because God did what He said He was going to do. These things came to pass. God did exactly what He said He would do. 
This next piece I want to share with you is just a reminder that no matter how good the intentions are from the people in your life, eventually, inevitably, in some way, shape, or form, they are going to let you down. How's that for feeling good about coming in this morning? At some point, we are going to let one another down. I find that I even let myself down. Like oftentimes, I'm like, I think I'm going to do pretty good. And then I look back, I'm like, I did terrible right there. That was not even close to what I intended. We let ourselves down. We let others down. But here's the thing. God never lets us down. When we put our faith and our trust in Him, He never lets us down. His Word always comes to pass. Does that mean that every situation is going to be easy street when I accept Jesus? That there's no more hard, no more difficult. It's all going to be simple and easy. And I would tell you, absolutely not. Here's Mary living out the Word of God in her life. She's a teenage girl, just gave birth in a barn and had to put her baby in a feeding trough. That doesn't seem easy to me. Does that seem easy to you? Right? There's, there's nothing normal. And I'm sure when Mary was journaling, doing her birth journal about how things are going to be when I give birth to my baby, this isn't what she thought. She didn't have this written down. She thought there's no way this is how it's going to look. And yet, His Word comes to pass. Oftentimes, nothing like we thought. And for those of us getting up in our 40s and 50s, I look back on my life and I go, there's nothing that worked out the way I thought it was going to. And yet what I find is in every season, even when I was faithless, God was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful. He was faithful. And He continues to be to this very day. And so the question for us is, where then do you want to put your trust? Where do you want your trust to really reside? In your own wisdom? In what you think should happen? In the plans that you set forth? This is what the Apostle Paul says as we head down the home stretch. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom of God. That righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written... He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Your story is being written so that God can get all the glory. What does your story look like? Hopefully it looks like one of His righteousness, His sanctification, His redemption playing out, even if we're a bunch of fools. It makes for a great testimony. And it happens time and time again in our lives when we put our trust in Him. And as a result, what comes out of this is peace. God desires for us to have His peace. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. To truly know God is to know peace. 
And to not know God is to have no peace. And so that's the greatest gift any of us could receive this season. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can have and we can know your peace through the gift of your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming so that we could have provision, so that we could feed upon the bread of life. Thank you, Lord, that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we are now reconciled, reconnected, redeemed to God the Father. This relationship that we walked away from so many thousands of years ago, we can be reconnected to you to this very day. Thank you, Lord, for what you're up to in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that in a season that for many of us, it does not scream peace, it screams anything but peace, that we can have peace in you. We can have peace in your holy name, your precious name. We can know you, and we can know what it is to have peace in you. Lord, please let that peace reign in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.